Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word, story time, 134. It's going to be released on one of the myriad bank holiday weekends in the UK that are coming up over the next month. Three of the next four weekends, Jeff, are long weekends, would you believe? That's due to the coronation the weekend after this one. We have lots to share with you this week, as we always do. It's been a bloody busy week. We did story time this time last week. We did the Sachin story time. We did the normal weekly show. We've had the Hanscom interview out, and, and here we are again. I know, I know. I, we've, it, all I'm all I'm doing is recording podcast episodes with you. It <laughs> seems, and and potentially having public holidays as well. One of the th- this is how it's been at this end because I I got back in the country just before Easter. Then there was the Anzac Day weekend where it was on the Tuesday, so effectively it, it just became a long weekend. When you're a freelancer, you don't know when public holidays are, right? Like yes. it just they. Like you don't know when weekends are most of the time. You basically we measure our lives in day one through day five, and then three days until the next test match. That's that's how time works in our brains. So I got back on on a Thursday evening. Went all right. I'm back at work. Feet under the desk. Going to send off some emails. All this stuff. I was like, why is no one replying to my emails? It was Good Friday. Completely forgotten. Didn't even know that Easter existed. <laughs> like had not registered in my brain at all. And then the same sort of thing with with the Anzac Day situation. You know, oh Monday night dinner. I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. And then I was like, wow, everyone's hitting it pretty hard for a Monday night dinner. Um, completely <laughs> forgotten there was a public holiday the next day. So <laughs> I don't know. It's not the same for everybody. That's that's all I'm no. saying. Yeah, Malcolm, the great Malcolm, um, is uh, has been known to say there are only two types of days when you're on a cricket tour: playing days and non-playing days. And that's, mm-hmm. as you say, the rhythm we work on. Rach was talking to our next door neighbour, who's also got a young kid, this morning about 
bank holiday Monday and yet we used to celebrate those. Now it's one more day when Winnie isn't at nursery, which needs mm. to be accounted for next week where she'll be <laughs> sort of under our feet. Not that it's a problem. We're going to make the most of it after taking her to Lords last Saturday uh, to watch Middlesex. I'm going to take her back again tomorrow to watch Middlesex and Kent with some other friends and other final word pals and, and all the rest of it. So she's getting a bit of a feel for it. She said to me this morning, that she's excited about going back to Lords, but don't let me see the scary man after being completely oh. petrified of WG Grace and the sculpture last week. So he is oh. the scary man to her. <laughs> Hell yeah. I, I, I am liking this. I, I heard you mention in passing that she was um, not impressed or not pleased at, at being around the statue. I'm all for this. You know, you, you know my thoughts on, you know, I'm, I'm against the run of play, I suppose, uh, as, as compared to um, the way that he's, he's deified in England about WG Grace, the, the biggest cheat in the history of cricket. <laughs> uh, I, I'm all for getting generations who are like, nah, not having a bar of it. Get him out of here. Yes. Rename the gate. Well, so she doesn't like the sculpture, but she, you know the WGs on the grandstand <laughs> side of the ground, the, the concession stalls there with the, you know, I think it's a bar yeah. as well. It's called WGs. It actually looks like it says a, a, <laughs> a racial slur if you read it the wrong way, but it, it definitely says WGs. But uh, she was quite excited about uh, the uh, MCC cap, the, um, the egg and bacon cap that, that he's wearing in that picture. So she was cool with that just not with the sculpture, mm. with the long beard and so on. In I think it's the Harrison Gardens there. So yeah. we'll avoid that. Well, fair enough. If, if you were designing something to look terrifying for a child, I mean, a, a, a metal dude who's like six foot ten and, <laughs> and covered in like, you know, it looks like a, a, a beaver has attached itself to his face. I mean, that that is a fairly terrifying prospect for a, for mm. a very small person as well. Think about the proportionality <laughs> in size. Like imagine being you and then imagine that he's actually 14 feet tall and, you know, hairy and hungry and, and like crashing down the street to climb through your bedroom window. It doesn't bear worth thinking about. No, it, it makes sense. Everything you're saying there stands to reason. Uh, Jeff, it's I... Basically the BFG, like the, like the Quentin Blake illustrations in the BFG mm. of the bad giants of the you know the flesh lump eater and and so on that's kind of what wg grace would look like if you were a two-year-old <laughs> jeff i mentioned i'll be seeing some final word uh, types uh, at lords tomorrow and at dulwich uh, hamlet on saturday a game we need to win to not get relegated by the way or at least get a point uh, that that means we have um some control on on the final day of the season um there'll be a lot of final word people in edinburgh on the third of those bank holiday weekends that I referred to before, we've been okay. studiously raising money for the tabs, as you know, for the half marathons that we're running. I did another 10K yesterday. I'm feeling very um, athletic at the moment. I'm going to do another one tomorrow. Then on Saturday morning, I'm going to do a – in race conditions, I'm going to do a park run. I know it's not really that competitive park run, but I'm going to treat it competitively and, and take the girls down and, and so on. But we're, we're 28% – Park run. <laughs> yes, twenty eight percent of the way to our target. We've uh, we've raised one thousand four hundred and forty five pounds and sixty two uh, pence. We're trying to get to five grand in the GBP. So that's all in the show notes. And um, as we've said before, I think we're up to now sixteen runners in, in Edinburgh for the half marathon, which is really cool. So you can uh, get on board with that. I'm pretty sure if you still wish to run, you can too. There was a a late sign up this week, and that didn't seem to be a problem. So if you've heard us talking about the Edinburgh long weekend or the the the, the May bank holiday long weekend. 28th of May, half marathon, chuck on a tab singlet. It'll have your name on the front. Um, you'll raise money with me, with the others. Uh, we'll get to our goal there, I'm sure, uh, and that can be supported by 
hitting the link in the show notes as we keep pounding the pavement day in, day out. Pounding, pounding techno music. That's <laughs> the kind of pounding that, that I'm just going to say, the kind of pounding that I'm interested in. Well, <laughs> getting very woolly hammered very early. Um, I'm extremely tired, Adam. It's a, I, I haven't been running, but I did ride 30Ks on my bike today, so my wow. legs feel like they're going to fall off. You, you, and can you, I stay awake? You, 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 just, just unpack that for me, will you? What were you doing? I mean, I'm, I'm running 10K on a treadmill for a reason. What are you, what are you doing cycling 30K for? No, I was just going from one place to another and ah. decided that I would do it in the way that costs some physical effort. That's all. Okay. Um, being on tour means you get very, uh, you have limited opportunities to actually look after yourself physically. So mm. I, I mm. Try, to, try to at least do it in, in my downtime. Okay. I've also been researching things in my downtime uh, because that's the kind of cool guy I am. Because when we spoke on, God, I can't even remember one of the 15 shows we've done in the last week. I couldn't remember who had made two consecutive hundreds in their first two test matches. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about tons on debut all the time. And I thought, well, there must be a couple, but I, I couldn't think of any off the top of my head. You said Greg Blewett, correct. The others, Bill Ponsford, Doug Walters, Elvin Kelacharan, uh, Surav Ganguly and Rohit Sharma did it for India. Jimmy Neesham, I totally forgot yes. about that. Jimmy Neesham two in his first two, and uh, sports betting enthusiast Muhammad Azharuddin scored three in three. So there you go. If you were if you were feeling an itch unscratched after I, I floated that question and didn't have an answer on the last story time we did or the last formal non-Sachin story time, was it? That's the answer. And there's a link back through to the Sachin story time as well because Rohit Sharma's tons in his first two test matches was in the Rose Pedal Farewell Sachin series when they um, gave him his first chance. I think he was batting at six from memory. And yeah. made tons and yeah, including one at Mumbai where he batted with Sachin in his final test innings. He was batting at six in Adelaide twenty fourteen as well. He yeah, he was he was a middle order. Um they they kept occasionally picking him as a middle order player, yeah. Rohit Sharma, for quite a, a few years and he was he was erratically in the side until eventually they gave him a run as an opener. Now he's the test captain. Things you learn. Uh, got an interesting piece of correspondence in from Sean McGiven. You know the one from the song. Now this is interesting. Okay, this is this is very niche, but but you'll know that if you listen to the show, you'll know that we play Nerd Pledge and it's the game and it has the numbers and you have to work out what something means from the numbers. Sean wrote in and said, "Today I learned that in 1911, a uh, this is this is a ghost story writer named M. R. James invented Nerd Pledge in a short story called The Tractate Midoff. I mean, if those words don't mean anything." To you, it's like a, a written attract, you know, a written thing. So it's about libraries. It's a horror story set in libraries, which is it's kind of baller if you can pull that off. So here is a quote from the story, and, and I looked it up and I read the whole story because I wanted to figure out what was going on. And this is this is the protagonist of the story who has who is searching for something and has found this clue on a little piece of paper. It was a small slip with nothing whatever on it but five numerals, not divided or punctuated in any way. One, one, three, three, four. At least he had this clue. If the figures referred to a press mark in his library, 
They were only susceptible of a limited number of interpretations. They might be divided into 1.13.34, or 11.3.34. He could try all of these in the space of a few minutes, and if any one of the books were missing, he had every means of tracing it. He got quickly to work, though a few minutes had to be spent in explaining his early return to his landlady and his colleagues. This is so British, it's hilarious. 1.13.34 was in place and contained no extraneous writing. After a cursory glance at 11.33.4, which first confronted him and was a perfectly new book, he ran his eye along the line of quartos, which fills 11.3. The gap he feared was there. 0.34 was out. Nerd Pledge from 1911. Jeff, I was desperately hoping there was going to be a cricket game played on the 11th of March, 1934, so 11.3.34, but mm-hmm. not quite, not quite. England uh, toured India and played uh, one, two, three test matches there, the last of which was played at Chennai and finished on the 13th of February, 1934, where uh, Headley Verity took seven for 49. So uh, if you want a nerd pledge out of it, you've got one, kind of, sort of. I, I, I was looking for Sheffield Shield scores, but the Sheffield Shield weirdly finished in January that year, which would suggest that they're off doing something else. Anyway, doesn't matter. There we go. It's not far off Allen Border either, 11,174 runs. So, you know, you're you're in the ballpark anyway. Another little bit to tidy up from previous weeks, a question that had been extant floating around there. Is Jack Leach the only bowler to win player of the match in a test without taking a wicket? Uh, when he made hmm. the 92 runs as the night watchman yeah. opener against Ireland. We, di- we didn't quite have the answer to this at the time, but some of our listeners started chatting to the Association of Cricket Statisticians <laughs> and asking questions about this because, of course, they did. And the answer is Jack Leach is kind of the only player to satisfy that criteria. So basically you've got to look at players who are batting in the bottom four normally. So you've got Ajay Ratra who makes 100 at number eight in Antigua for India, wins player of the match, does bowl in the match and doesn't take a wicket, but he's the wicket keeper. <laughs> he's the, he was the 11th bowler used right. um, when they were all just too tired to continue. Uh, we've talked about this game before. It's the one where Anil Kumble gets his jaw broken and yes. um, continues bowling in the in the bandage and all of the rest of it. The Bangladeshi player Alok Kapali got player of the match for making 85 against the West Indies and did bowl an over but batted at six in that game. So that doesn't really count. The one that I think should qualify is Pat Simcox who made 108 against Pakistan batting at number 10, Yep. only bowled five overs and didn't take a wicket. He only bowled so few overs because it was the first innings and, and all of the fast bowlers took all of the wickets. And then rain meant that they didn't get a second innings for him to bowl in. So he would have bowled more in, in a normal match, but but didn't. But Andrew Sampson says Simcox doesn't count because he's qualified as an all-rounder. He, uh-huh. He's classified as an all-rounder because the criteria is you average over 15 with the bat and you take fewer than two and a half wickets per match. So that's sort of the ACS definition of how you count an all-rounder. You're allowed to average above 15 if you take more than two and a half wickets per match, like like Garfield Sobers or, yeah. or Jack Callis or others. Then, then you can be counted as a bowler if you, even if you have a higher average, if you take wickets at that higher rate. But if you take fewer than two and a half and you average over 15, then you're not 
a specialist bowler by their definition. But he is picked by South Africa as a specialist spinner in that game. He's batting at 10. The batting's a bonus. And he's not a huge wicket taker anyway. Only took 27 in 20 tests. But he averaged over 17 overs per innings bowled. So he was definitely picked as a bowler. That was his primary job. For me, I think he qualifies. But the reason... There's another wrinkle which the ACS didn't take into account. There were two player of the match awards in that game. They gave out one for each team. So Simcox gets one for South Africa and Azar Mahmood gets one for Pakistan after making 100 batting at number seven and they both get a prize. Very rare. Which means that eight... Totally. Even if you count Simcox as a bowler, he's not the only one to win the player of the match award. So I think on that metric, Jack Leach does get it, even under my criteria, as the only player, single player, to win a Player of the Match award as a bowler without taking a week. It hasn't happened. I know that has happened a few times to Player of the Match uh, have been given out. I'm looking at a chart now. I mean, you can count it on – you can kind of count it on your fingers. Yeah, maybe eight or nine of them. And interestingly, the chart I'm looking at doesn't include the game that that Pat Simcox – was the joint recipient. So make of that what you will. I, I want to take issue with the definition. So if you're averaging 15 with the bat, I, I appreciate there's a bowling criteria. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate there's a bowling criteria. Yeah. But if you're averaging 15.1 with the blade, that does not make it an all-rounder. I don't care how many wickets you've taken. I, I'm a bit – yeah, I'm, I'm a bit off on that. I think that it should – But that's it, – it, it's, it's got to be both. Yeah, no, I understand. It's got to be I, I get there's the – If your wicket takes – Sure, I, I get that, you know, you are a bowling all-rounder, you know, in that scenario. But I think to even deign to use the term all-rounder, you've got to have a two in front of your average with the bat to start. If you've got a two in front of your average, I can come at that. 20, yeah, 15 feels like you're a, a useful lower-order player who's hit a couple of 50s and inflated their average with a few red inkers. Right, exactly. Yeah, fifteen is a is an Ajidagaku sort of area. You know, not yeah. a not a. Um, yeah, if, if you if you're in the twenties, maybe maybe you've got a claim at that point. So on that basis, Shane Warne's pretty close. To, yeah, he is. He averaged seventeen point three with the bat in Test cricket, twelve half centuries. You right. know, he made three thousand Test runs. But I don't think anyone calls Shane Warne a bowling all rounder. You know what I'm trying to say? No, uh, no one but thinks he takes of him in those terms. Than- he takes more than two and a half wickets a game, so he's classified as a bowler. Oh, I see. So, you, you, okay, I was looking at it from the other way. So you can rule yourself out of being called an all-rounder for being too good at the other discipline. Okay. Yes, All right. Yes, you you have to be both. You have to take not that many wickets and average above 15 with yeah. the bat. Yeah. Then, then you can then you can get in because you're not quite either thing, right? I guess you've got to draw the line somewhere. And there will always be arguments about where – the line is obviously, as we know from Australian <laughs> cricket. We did. Speaking of not um, not one thing nor the other, we we received some um, tweets during the week about the Bob Kunis thing and suggesting it was actually Arlett might have pinched it. It was in print first, by I didn't catch the name of the reporter, but um, the last line of the match report referred to Kunis with the bat being. I think it said something like, "As a cricketer, he's not one thing nor the other, like his name." Mm. And that must he's have bat- been. He's batting like his name is. is yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, there we go. We learn things every day. Um, and that's probably as much as we need to do on Bob Kunis, given he's come up on the show about 17 times in the last four weeks. One more piece of correspondence that answers some questions. Uh, Pat Rogers wrote in because I didn't know how Wally Hammond was out hit wicket in the 1936-37 series. Um, Pat says he, he hit his own stumps going back maybe to try to cut, going back to play a shot against the leg spinner Frank Ward. Pat Rogers says not the first time he had trouble with his middle stump. Um, fair, <laughs> fair enough. Um, and he also says this though, which is reassuring, I wouldn't be too worried about Frank's descendants coming after you as he divorced early in his marriage 
on the grounds that his wife said it had not been consummated. Ooh. So, Ooh. so no direct descendants. So wow. we can slag him off all we want, and there will be no angry grandchildren coming after us. Good to know. And that, uh, that's good, um, well, that's how my grandmother got out of her first marriage. So she got married off when she was like fifteen in North Wales. When that was the that was the thing that was done. Um, mm. And eventually in the war, my grandfather got stationed up there late in the war, 1944, I'm pretty sure, and he'd had some trouble in his marriage, chiefly that his, uh, that his best mate was rooting his wife. But he had three kids at home and he shouldn't have run off. You know, it's fair to say if you've got three kids at home, even if your wife's been mucking around, you shouldn't leave them. And he, he did do that. But he shacked up with my grandmother, who by that stage would have been in her early 20s, I think, and the excuse she used or the rationale she used when she was finally divorced in, in the 60s when women were finally allowed to initiate divorce was that the, the, the marriage hadn't been consummated. So that was a thing. That was a thing. Um, I didn't know it was a, a thing that was part of Frank Ward's life. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm keen to speculate further on that front. <laughs> but uh, Interesting well, there that, you go. Uh, inter- interesting that it wasn't just on the field that he struggled for penetration. <laughs> now... Um, <laughs> Now, right. So that that all links to Simon Ward's number, which was uh, which was two fifty six. Where I had to find a two fifty six in each of the first three test matches of the series, which I did. And and he said, kudos on on identifying them. Extra credit for highlighting that Chuck Fleetwood Smith bowled twenty five point six overs in the third test, which I'd missed. That means there were actually four two fifty sixes across the three tests. Uh, I can't remember what the fourth one was, but I think it, it was there in, in what we talked about. He says this, as someone with a particular appreciation for interwar cricket, the thought of a Wally Hammond cover drive quickens the pulse, although I wonder if the Aussies were trolling him by playing Jack Badcock in the opening test. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That is a fairly pointed thing to have in in the opposition. Uh, Right, so that is a very long preamble sequence and, and I think we can get on with the show. Yeah, we're about 20-plus minutes in. I should have said off the top as well, by the way, that Sean McGiven, our initial correspondent, is one of our runners at Edinburgh uh, for the Lord's Tabs. They said a few, Bob, uh, our way, Sean's way, the runner's way, the Lord's Tabs way. It's all in the show notes. Never be, never see, not done the Sean McGiven. <laughs> right, let us play a little bit of mm, Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, just a few numbers today, just a quick little round. Nerd Pledge is the game that we play with all the nice people on the internet. They fund this show by sending us contributions of currency that are not normal prescribed amounts. They are uh, very specific amounts. The amounts relate to cricket in some way. We don't know how. We have to figure that out. That's the game. Toby Wilson is our first cab off the rank. $4.65 in Australian currency. Toby has sent through. He says, I settled on this number. It wasn't Bazball, but cause for celebration in my hometown all the same. What does 465 mean, Adam? Yes, so Toby said that he had a number of other nerd pleasure numbers that he was considering and all of them have been ticked off. So uh, I sense this might be a a bit more on the detailed side. We'll find out as we go. Right, so let's go through the clue. AUD has to be Australian. Not Bazball suggests something on the slower side. Cause for celebration in one's hometown. Well, 
it won't be suburban. It'll be something r- regional. <laughs> regional. Rural and regional. 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 Rural uh, and regional Australia. Rural and regional Australia. It'll be somewhere um, mm. like that. So that that's yep. the bits and bobs. I mean, my first thought was, well, are there any innings where Australia made 465 and did it slowly? They kind of did against Pakistan at Adelaide in 1983. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, 83, right time. This was um, in uh, in late 1983, just after Keating was made treasurer on the 5th of March, 83, or at least that's when they won the election. But the centuries in that um, innings were from Kepler Vessels, who has no regional hometown in Australia, um, no. and, and Alan Border, who, you know, well, from Mossman, but at that stage of his career, there's not going to be any cause for celebration anywhere that Alan Border made another 100, right? It's just... You know, it wouldn't stand out. So I, I chalked that off. It's not going to be the 465 they made against the Pakistanis at Adelaide in 83. I had a look at all the four for 65s. I thought, oh, maybe there's an outlier. There's like a Gavin Robertson or something mm-hmm. like that. Might That might have been his figures on debut, but that wasn't right. Lily, Hughes, Dottermaid, May, Fleming, Gillespie, Siddle. I mean, they all had much bigger days in, in Test cricket. So it's, it's not going to be a four for 65. Only one innings in Test history has a strike rate of exactly 46.5. Jeff, I know you quite like um, dividing strike rates. That Sanjay Mandraker had an innings of a strike rate of 46.5. That was against Pakistan in 1989. With a bit of rounding. That's interesting. Yeah, well, there's because a... It, because a 0.5 should be pretty easy to yeah, land on. Yeah, I, I, I should have kept it for you. I'll bring it up for you after the show and you can have a look through that scorecard. Mm. There are quite a few uh, 46.5 ones because that's 20 from 43. That gives you that. Okay. And quite a lot of players get 20 from 43, including Justin Langer twice. There are some 40 from 86s as well, but nothing really um, standing out there to make it worthwhile. I'll have you Mm. know, in bowling strike rates, as of right this moment, live scorecard, all the rest of it, Prabhup Jayasuriya, who we were talking about on the weekly show as being within striking distance of being the equal second quickest to 50 test wickets, something like that. His strike rate right now is 46.5 on the knocker and he's the only bowler in the history of test cricket with a bowling strike rate of 46.5 bang on. I, that felt that huh. felt right. That felt good to me. It's obviously not going to be it because how could have Toby known any of those things when he put his pledge in in January? Um, but I, but yeah. I thought you and, would like that. I, I, and meanwhile, I mean, we were talking up Ireland for making a big score in the test match. Sri Lanka made 700 mm. batting second, uh, four centuries, including <laughs> two doubles <laughs> at the top. I mean, oh, Jesus. I, I did it's say it on the uh, weekly show, Ireland's batting is a lot better than their bowling at the moment. Then I pondered whether I'd overthought this and, and went back to the cap number, 465. I know that Australia are at about that at the moment, and so it is. Todd Murphy. I'm like, oh, here we go. Todd Murphy, Achuka Moama, giddy up. I mean, we can make it non-basball because you're not exactly sexy bowling little doorknobs with glasses on, although he does a lot more than bowl doorknobs. Um, Jack Leach does that. He's part of basball. True, true. Uh, but the pledge came in on the 7th of January, uh, so he didn't get his baggy green until... Uh, about a month later in early February. I had a look in all the famous cricketers from uh, Achuka Moama, by the way, and there are none. Yep. There's one. His name's Todd There's Murphy. One. Footballers, mm. meanwhile, quite a few. Michael Braun from the, um, what was it? Um, Hope everyone has a fucking good night when he won the uh, <laughs> Glenn Dinning medal once for the Eagles. Oh, thanks for thanks for giving me the medal and I hope everyone has a fucking good night. Something like that. <laughs> Simon Eichold, who missed the crucial goal of the 87 preliminary final, which where he was sort of five metres out, almost point blank range, hooks it, kicks a point, 
And we know that what happens a couple of minutes later, Buck and Arrow with two goals in a minute, including one after the siren. I might start crying talking about that. Um, and with the Melbourne theme, uh, Clayton your, Oliver. Your dad was halfway home at that we, point. We were. We were in the car park. I mean, it's not a word of a lie. We were in the car park <laughs> and someone said, Hawthorne's won, Hawthorne's won. We're like, yeah, anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> speaking of Melbourne, Clayton Oliver, Clary, and Jack Viney are both from Machuca Moama as well. So a strong mm-hmm. Melbourne footy club theme. I've ruled a lot of things out for you, Toby. Wouldn't have a Scooby what it is. I, I, I'm, I'm tipping it's going to be something uh, tangential because in terms of slow stuff, strike rates, slow 465s, cap mm-hmm. number, it's none of that, but it's something. So it kind of, you know, so if you're on Discord and, and, and any of this jumps out at you, please do tell. If not, then Toby, you can tell us and we can handle this on a revisit special or maybe even next week. If We're going to try and move away from revisit specials because they've become yeah. a bit of a nightmare. So we'll try and do it next week, Toby. So get straight on us. Okay, okay. I, I just I reckon it's a score. I just think it wasn't basketball yeah. means it's I reckon it's gotta be a team innings and if there's no test innings, maybe it's maybe it's domestic cricket, yeah. maybe it's first class. And it's gotta involve a, a you know, a small town hero. It's a Dane Hanstead kind of answer. It's a Graham Vinpani and <laughs> Wangaratta kind of answer. You know, it's it's gotta be it's there's gotta be a, a, a central role played by somebody from yeah. RRA, that is a rural and regional Australia. If if you're not familiar with the lingo. It really does allow you to emphasize. I was, I was, someone was telling me about a, they'd, they'd been listening to an interview with, with a woman who's a lip reading specialist. And she said that Australians are the hardest to lip read because <laughs> they just don't move their mouths. <laughs> they just, they're like, all of the sounds come out. You just don't is actually that, move your mouth at all. You is that just the Norcross, stay in the same the Norcross theory that Meg Lanning doesn't move our lips when she's talking? She, yeah. She's very close together. Um, mm-hmm. she, she speaks most eloquently, but um, the physicality bit, she doesn't move her lips yeah. when talking at all, like a ventriloquist. No. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's incredible. <laughs> it's the second career lined up for, you know, once once the WPL stops paying her half a million a year. Um, right, okay, that is uh, an unsuccessful attempt at our first yes. number from Toby It gets Wilson. better, it gets uh, better. <laughs> Aravind is our second nerd pleasure. The number is $4.50 in USD. Yes, Aravind has a clue for you, Jeff. I want you to tell the story of a well-chronicled bilateral series but rarely referenced on Storytime. The number concerns the series batting stats of somewhat of a cult hero. Cult hero. Okay, so this is where I started with this. Players who've made 450 runs in a test series, that's where I went to. Uh, can I call Shivnaran Chandapal a cult hero? Don't think so. Made 10,000 test runs. Doesn't really work that way. Alistair Cook also made 10,000 test runs, just by the by. Tom Latham might make 10,000 test runs. No, he won't because New Zealand won't play any test matches. He's going to play about six more tests in the next 10 years. But he could make 10,000 test runs if they played a modicum of uh, of test cricket. And he just doesn't have the sort of David Koresh about him, Tom Latham either. I listened to a really interesting podcast about Waco uh, yesterday. Um, you know, he doesn't you got to have something about you to be a cult hero. Uh, and Tom Latham, uh, I don't expect he'll be a cult leader, nor would he be defined as a cult hero. <laughs> um, yes. I suppose, you know, New Zealand are the – like people always think of them as the non-mainstream cricket country, but they're in every bloody ICC final. Like you, you, I don't think you can call New Zealand a cult team anymore. No. So, so no, no, no. Uh, Wasim Raja, who we've talked about, a lot in the last mm-hmm. couple of weeks, the the Pakistani bat who 
finished up his life in England on the cricket field. Uh, when Pakistan toured India in 1979, he made 450 runs. It could be that, but is that series particularly talked about? I'm not sure. I really wanted it to be and kind of still want it to be Sunil Gavaskar in Australia in 77-78 because I think that's one of the all-time great test series. And it's not talked about as much as it might be because it is against the World Series cricket weakened Australians and, and maybe it's undervalued because of because of that reason. But we have talked about it a few times. I would like to do the full detailed story of that series sometimes. Maybe that's going to be the revisit if this is the way this number goes or maybe it'll be someone else's number. But I cannot reconcile calling Sunil Gawaskar a cult hero. No. He's just a hero. <laughs> you know, he's yes. he was the greatest Indian player until Tendulkar happened and the first to 10,000 runs, the 3,400s, all the rest of it. Yeah, the original uh, the original godlike Indian character who can do no wrong. Um, mm. and is, um, the first is, little master. Yes, venerated in that way, fawned over in that way. Um, to this day, we saw that on the commentary a couple of years ago. He had a birthday, didn't he? And they brought the cake out. And, well, no, it wasn't even that. It was the anniversary of an innings or... Yeah. I think it was a birthday. Was it a birthday? It a birthday. Right. And, and, yeah. and that's not to say that it's Sonny's fault that people behave this way around him, but it, it can be a, a little bit over the top. So not a cult hero. So if we go with cult hero in a series with some significance that means it gets spoken about, I think maybe we're talking about Alan Watkins in India in 1951-52. Cult hero because he played for Glamorgan and Glamorgan players didn't get picked for England really at that time. He was the first ever Glamorgan player to play an Ashes test, I, I noticed right. on reading reading his profile, which gives you a little sense of that. Now, 1951-52, England are pretty cocky on tour uh, in those days. So at the Oval in 1951, they get a narrow win in a low-scoring game against South Africa. That team has in it Len Hutton opening the batting, Peter May at three, Dennis Compton at four, Jim Laker is the spinner, Alec Beds is leading the quicks. None of those players bother going to India after that <laughs> series. They're like, nah, it's fine. Send whoever, they'll win. And the skipper, Freddie Brown, he doesn't go either. You'll remember Freddie Brown as the England mm. captain who was born in Peru, doesn't fancy the trip to India. So... They send a side where the only sort of major recognisable name is Brian Statham, maybe Derek Shackleton, who had a huge first-class career. Um, the only other names I immediately recognised were the wicketkeeper Dick Spooner, just because that's a great visual image, honestly. Like, if you tell someone to go and eat a bowl of dicks, then they will, by definition, become a Dick Spooner. Um, and, and Alan Watkins who we've talked about before. We've talked about one particular innings in this series before. I think we had a pledge on this innings when Watkins, who, who, was, who was never in fashion as an England player, made more than 20,000 first-class runs and 833 wickets. So, you know, not too shabby as a player. The first test in Delhi is his, his test match magnum opus. England are all out for 203. Vijay Merchant and Vijay Hazare make hundreds. India declare with a lead of 165 at the end of the third day. After the fourth day, Alan Watkins is 51 not out and he bats the entire last day of the game to finish up on 137 not out after exactly nine hours at the crease. He saves the test match and and, and that's his, his finest moment. Vino Mankad takes seven wickets in the match. And there's this quirk for the second test, right? This is this series is fascinating, actually, Adam. I could I could do several answers on this. Tom Graveney 
doesn't play in the first test, but he's coming back for the second and he's he's the most senior England batter on that tour. So he has to come back into the side. They need to open up a spot in the middle order. Alan Watkins has just made the 100, so he's there. Donald Carr is another player who debuted in that first test, made 76, put on a big partnership with Alan Watkins and helped save the test match. And the underperformer in the mix was... Nigel Howard, who had made 13 and 9, but there was a slight wrinkle that Nigel Howard was the captain of this team. So when Freddie Brown quit, they needed someone to be the captain and they only picked amateurs at that point in time. So they had to find a gentleman player and they grabbed Nigel Howard, who's only 26 years old. He's captaining Lancashire at that point. He's he's the classic sort of limited, like he's okay, but he's not that good. He plays just shy of 200 first-class matches, averages 24 and makes 300s. He's that kind of player, right? So he's he's not he, he's not in a position to command a spot ahead of anyone who can actually play. But someone's got to go and the, the suggestion is made that he should drop himself, but he doesn't. He's like, no, nah, I'm the captain. I'm not going to drop myself. So he drops Donald Carr, who has made that 76 on debut instead. Right, second test in Mumbai Vijay Hazare makes another ton, a big one, 155 not out, another big India score. Tom Graveney makes 100 in reply. They're almost level on the first innings. Alan Watkins makes another 80, then takes three for 20, bowls out India cheaply, um, but they don't have time to finish off the chase, England. So two draws in the first two tests. Nigel Howard, the, uh, the, the amateur skipper, he keeps on ending up at number seven. Like he just sort of keeps getting bumped down the order because, you know, he's not going to do much. He makes 20. Yeah, could be worse. Third test in Kolkata, Alan Watkins makes another 68. Nigel Howard makes a couple of 20s. Both teams bat too slowly to get a result. First three test matches are drawn. Fourth test, Donald Carr still can't get a game, still can't get picked after that successful debut. They're playing in Kanpur. The pitch is turning though here. So India are all out for 121. And, and on a pitch where no one else gets out of the 30s, Alan Watkins makes 68, gets them an 80-run lead, and that's enough to bowl out India uh, and, and get a win with a small run chase. Nigel Howard, the captain, makes one run. Does he have a moment of conscience before the fifth test and think, oh, maybe I should really put myself aside and, and you know, maybe let this other player have a go? Well, he doesn't play, but that's because he gets pleurisy and goes home. <laughs> so... What does um, so, what, what does pleurisy do to you? I'm not sure if I've heard of that. Pleurisy is it's it's stuff in the lungs, isn't it? Isn't it like oh, getting right. um, getting liquid in the lungs or something like that? Okay. So so he takes off ahead of the fifth test match. Donald Carr gets brought back in after his debut in the first test, and they only go and make him fucking captain. <laughs> <laughs> so successful debut, dropped for the next three, comes back as captain in the fifth test match. And that's his last test. He plays two tests in his career, one of them as England captain. Mm, um, mm. On, on the list of England captains, you know, Nigel Howard might be an unusual entry, but Donald Carr even more so. And what happens in that fifth test match? Vino Mankad rocks up in the first innings and takes eight for 55. <laughs> eight for 55, including four stumpings. The wicketkeeper is named Kokan Sen. And I thought, has anyone has is there a bowler who's got four stumpings in a test innings before? So yeah. I I spent some time trying to search this through and, and figure it out. It's only ever happened one other time, and that was Narendra Hawani in 1988 on the same ground in Chennai. So 
Perwani got four stumpings in an innings where the wicketkeeper, Kiran More, took five stumpings, including one off somebody else, and that's still the the record for a, a, a test innings is five stumpings. So four from the one bowler is the record, and Vinay Mankat has that record. And while he's taking his eight for 55, the news comes in that King George is dead. Ah, so yes. So major moment for the empire, right? I was trying to remember what February the, 52. I, I was going to say, I knew we had spoken about Donald Carr in recent weeks. It's because Donald Carr picked up the first wicket at the Elizabethan age. That's the test he captained. Yeah. It came up with Lawrence last week because we – I can't remember right. who it was, but we worked out who the first wicket of the King Charles era was, so to speak. Um, yeah. Must have been must have been Anderson, I suppose, because it was the the first day of the of the test, and it would have been Anderson or Robinson. They bowled on day one, but yeah, the first wicket was Donald Carr, and he only took. I'm looking at it here. He in Test cricket, two wickets at average of seventy, but one of them happened to be the first um, after George the sixth passed away, and they took that rest day and came back um, and picked up the Test match the day after. Well, he um, he conceded. Well, he had that average of seventy because India made a bunch of runs. So England all out for two sixty six with the eight wickets from Vinu Mankad. India make four fifty seven by the time they declare. Uh, final word fave Polly Omrigar gets a ton, as does Pankaj Roy, one of Bharat's favourites. There's one more chance for Alan Watkins to try to save another Test match. Bat for two days. And he gives it a go. He, 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 he digs in for quite some time. He top scores. He makes 48. That's for a long time. But eventually Vinu Mancad brings him undone, a return catch, takes four more wickets, does Mancad in that second innings, takes 12 in the match. Donald Carr, captain in his second and final match. Nigel Howard already on the boat home, never adds to his four test matches from that tour that should have been one test match on that tour. And Alan Watkins ends the series with 450 runs at 64. He does get three more tests when India visit England later that year. It's only a few months later when when they rock up for a return series. And why would this bilateral series be talked about to this day? Because that was India's first ever win over England in a test match, February 1952. Nicely done. Great answer. Uh, Aravind, thank you for uh, being a great supporter of us. He's been in the show before with Nerd Pledges and you can simply get back in the queue. That's the way it works. That's what makes the story time world go around. Once your answer's been dealt with, edit your number and get back in the queue and we'll come to it another day. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. 
Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham, you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Leon. We have a triple header for 3.43. And Jeff, you could explain how this came to pass, because in order to jump the queue, you need to have the number already come up. Over to you. Okay, yeah. And so normally that would be someone uh, who's come in earlier and there's a number that's come in later and the later one comes up with the earlier one. This is confusing because this is actually a later number that then collects two earlier ones on the way up the queue. Ah. If you're confused about this. So so Sean Rajanayagam has made a pledge. He's a new pledger. So if you're a very first-time pledger, we try to get you on within three months. And then if you're, if you're subsequent, then it can take longer than that. So he's within the three months. He, he's came in in January. But earlier than that, we had separate 343s from Stuart Akers and real Victor Trumper, uh, hot tip, he's not the real Victor Trumper, but let's <laughs> let's go with it. Let's not ruin anyone's <laughs> illusions here. And so Sean has sort of collected them on the way through. So everybody, everybody's getting a head start in this particular uh, triplet of numbers. The 343, Sean sent through a clue for his, long-time listener, first-time pledger. I'm a member of the fill-in-the-blank Australian diaspora. Growing up, my summers were filled with Channel 9's Summer of Cricket, so despite my family's wishes, there was no chance that I would support the country of their birth over Australia, the country of mine. My pledge relates to a match between the Aussies and the mother country, the first international that I attended. I remember being the only member of a large crowd of friends and family cheering for the Aussies as they were given a pasting by the men from the motherland. Both of their openers scored centuries, and I'm hoping that my pledge might give you occasion to discuss the less heralded of the two. Yeah, and it's a game I remember very well. It's a game uh, I remember as an 18-year-old lad, Sean. I remember it being a controversial Thursday uh, match at the SCG due to that shithouse Zimbabwean umpire, Russell Tiffin, who at the time I thought was a Fucking cheat because of the way the test match at Sydney finished a few days earlier. And now, of course, I've tempered my view over time, realising he was a guy who was just having a bad time of it. He wasn't going out of his way to do over anybody. He just was, you know, I, I guess um, we saw with Joel Wilson in 2019 when you're out of form as an umpire, for whatever reason, it's just the, the, the cricket gods send more leg before wickets your way to decide upon. And with the advent of technology and by 2002-03, there was plenty of it. Um, your decisions can be shown as erroneous far more than what would have been the case beforehand. Yeah. And, and you know, beforehand it was just some muttering from players and it would be like, oh, well, that one, I thought that one was high or whatever. But, you know, nobody's going back over it a million times. So I really feel for umpires. Like they, You talk about players being under pressure, but if you have even one bad decision, let alone a couple of them in a row, the, the pressure must become unbearable very mm. quickly. And for Tiffin, the reason why that the pressure was lifted ahead of this one day was because, yeah, Australia lose to England at the SCG, the Steve Waugh final ball, 100 and so on, but eventually lose Andy Caddick on the final day. 
And this one day it comes a few days later and it's also at the SCG and it's Australia playing again and he's just rostered on for another game. Now, again, I mentioned it's a Thursday afternoon. It's very hot and it's the first one day after the break. Now, what do you mean by the break? I hear you ask. Well, this is the last time the Tri-Series was split into two. It was quite common when we were growing up that the Tri-Series would be even in three blocks around the test matches, but this was the last time yep. they did anything like that. And I, thinking it through, I, I don't think they'd done anything like this for at least a few summers. So there were one dayers after uh, the first three Ashes test matches, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, and then there were two further test matches, Melbourne-Sydney in the usual way, and they came back and played more one-dayers. So those five one-dayers to start the series were played on the 13th of December, then the fateful 15th of December match between England and Australia at the MCG, which I will never forget. Most people remember it for Shane Warne breaking his shoulder. I remember that too. My eyes were on Warne, Southern stand end, now Warne stand end, and going down in his follow-through, yeah. um, lunging over to, to the onside and, and, and collapsing on his shoulder and, and it being pretty clear straight away that he was in Same. a world of pain. You were there as well, were you? Yeah. Yeah, I was there. I remember um, watching it. I remember it vividly. I still remember exactly the sort of the, the shape of him going to ground and then not getting back up again. It was, you know, it was, it was, there was this dread. There was this, oh God, you know, but like yeah. you expect a player to bounce back up and when they stay down, you you know there's trouble. Well, it was after dark because Australia had made shitloads of yeah. runs in the afternoon. It was Ponting and Hayden, I reckon, Jeff, who made hundreds that day. There was two of them anyway, you know, Australia make 300 and lots and, and so it goes. Mm. It was hot. I was in Bay 13 and I'd met a girl in the Monash Uni Open Day queue. I don't know what we were queuing for, something or another, and I'd stayed in touch with her in, in the couple of months between times. And the next time I had seen her was, I'm pretty sure this day, where I, I had basically invited her on a date to Bay 13 <laughs> with me and all of my mates. I just turned 18. So she lived in she lived in Turagan, Lauren, and she um, got on the train up from Turagan, met me. Uh, I was mm-hmm. living in Dandenong at the time, met me. I guess it would have been there or thereabouts and got the train into the city to watch the Australia play. She had not interest at all in cricket, but there she was thrown into this mess of uh, this mess of humankind that Bay 13 could be. Wow. What an know. offer. What a, do, do you want to – oh, it's 40 degrees. Do you want to go and watch 100 overs of cricket? <laughs> no, right. What, what, what was she what, – what was I thinking? What was she thinking? Yeah. And to add to that, what could have she possibly been thinking when remembering that, you know, you're 18 and you know, all you want to do mm. is have as many beers as you can and that kind of thing. I saw a Mark War life-sized cardboard cutout. Now, Jeff, you know I've got a bit of a, bit of a predilection for these things. Um, mm-hmm. It was not long after Mark War had released his um, pretty ordinary autobiography. Well, it wasn't written by him. It was ghostwritten, but it was called My Life or something like that. Of course, yeah. I'd got that the day it was released at the Divix in Dandenong Plaza. So I'd read the book already, but the um, – the, the cardboard cutout from the launch, I saw this floating around Bay 13 and it turned out a guy I knew, indeed a good friend of mine from when I played cricket as a kid, a guy I ran a half marathon with in the UK in 2012, Michael Newman, watch Hawthorne win a flag with him too. I saw Mick with it. I'm like, what's going on here? And he, he'd somehow was the, was the owner of this thing. He pinched it from the book launch or something and I offered him a round of beers, four beers to take it off his hands and it still lives in my parents' garage in, in Birragara, the Mark Wall life-size cutout. I think I've seen it. I reckon it's. Yeah. I, I reckon it came down to the jacuzzi during during one house party. 
That sounds, that sounds I give it I've got a, a James Heard one which I took to M ten once, well not far away from Bay thirteen, and dressed it in a doctor's yep. jacket, which didn't go over too well. Yeah. <laughs> didn't go over I, too well I taking it uh, taking James Heard to behind the Essendon members in a doctor's jacket. And I think I think that book, I think the Mark War book is the one who the title of which he couldn't remember on commentary a couple of years ago. They said, What well, what was the name of that of your autobiography? He goes, oh, I don't know, don't remember. <laughs> well, I don't think he's read it. Definitely wrote it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I doubt he's read it. So that's all happening at the start and I remember yeah, that mm. day well. Then they have the break and then they come back. And this first one day is on the 9th of January, Sri Lanka, Australia, and it is carnage. By 2003 standards, proper carnage. At one point, Sri Lanka are none for 237 in the 34th over. So going at sevens, none down. That's with uh, uh, Marvin Atapatu, spelt without the superfluous H's that Chamari's got in her name. You know, you notice that Chamari Atapatu had the same spelling as Marvin Atapatu until about five years ago when she changed it. Do you remember that? Like it used to be spelt. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's often it's it's a it's a common thing with Sri Lankan names that the transliteration isn't settled. You know, in terms of what what it what it how it should be represented phonetically in in Roman alphabet. You you see it with Murali with the the th that can be a d because it's yes. kind of neither of those things. The sound. You know, with a with a Sri Lankan tongue, the sound is neither of those things. Right. It's sort of halfway in between those things. Like if you speak Icelandic, there are three different ths that are kind of d, like partly a d sound, but but they're they're on a scale. Like there are just sounds that we don't understand mm. with, mm. And, and and so it's you're you're trying to it's square peg round hole kind of stuff to to try to make it fit in an alphabet that doesn't really accommodate the language. It used to work when Tony Gregg would say that, Marvin Atapatu. Like I can hear Tony Gregg commentating, you know, when, when he was mm. coming out to Australia, as Sri Lanka did so often in that era, batting with Sanat Surya, And, you know, they're up against Brett Lee, Andy Bickle, a young Shane Watson in his first Aussie matches, Andrew Simons, uh, Hoggy and Mardo. Uh, rounding out the attack, and they lose Jai Surya in the 34th over. He's made 122 from 105 balls. They get pegged back a little bit. They go at sixes for the rest, and they hit the number that I'm sure Sean is speaking of, 343 for five. Happy days for Sri Lanka, their highest score ever in a one-dayer against Australia to that point. It was a reminder of the Kalawitarana days with uh, Jai Surya back in the famous tri-series of 95-96 and all from a side that had been rolled for 65 by Australia A earlier that week. And I, I, I do wonder, did they stay in Australia for Christmas? I mean, their, their previous commitment was on the 22nd of December. Did they stay put mm. or did Cricket Australia fly them home for Christmas with their families and bring them back for this game? I, I don't know. But either way, that was when the series was split up. A baby Kumar Sangakara at the end made 25 from 20 when he was but a boy. And you'll like this. Out of 343, there were 40, count them, 40 extras, which is huge. Wow. Also, I thought, I thought that might be a record. In fact, it's uh, on 21 occasions, there have been more than 40 sundries in a, in a one-day innings. The most I hear you ask, the West Indies conceded 59 extras against Pakistan at the Jabba in 1989 out of, uh, mm. out of their 258 for seven. Ian Bishop bowled 15 of the 37 wides, which, uh, which stood out uh, on the page. So we're learning stuff here. Anyway, where are we? Russell Tiffin. <laughs> uh, the Guardian, reading the match report from this game, it's a hilarious headline in The Guardian. Crisis down under as Australia lose two in a row. So because Australia had lost a test match, you know, the week before and lost a one-dayer in the group stage, 
they were so good that was considered crisis time, you know, um, ignoring the fact that McGrath and Gillespie and Warren hadn't played. But, yes, excoriated was the term they used of Russell Tiffin after the Ashes test that he'd overseen as umpire. And he did miss a bunch in this. I remember off the top of my head, Jai Surya was plumb leg before early on, not given. But it came back the other way too. Jai Surya bowling to Australia later on. They were all out for like 260-odd. They won by 79 runs. He had three plum league befores that weren't given when he was bowling. Still picked oh, yeah. up four for 39, but it was the is ones he wasn't the, giving. Is this the one that I can't remember who it is. It might be a left-hander. I'm just trying to see it in my mind's eye. Hit on the back leg, like trying to play, a, like going back. I, I remember watching this live, shaping to play a cut shot maybe, the ball skids on, hit on the back knee with a yeah. bent leg in front of middle stump. It is like I think it's the most out thing that you can possibly imagine. Yeah, well, short you, player, you, you, that you, sounds you can right. See, you can see what happened right. He gave out that leg before it was Langer. He gave out in the test match with a ball that was pitching, you know, a foot outside the leg stump. And he was so scarred by that experience that he was giving pretty much everything not out, which I remember at the time listening to the ABC, it might have been Jim, who said umpires giving – Leg befores that are plum not out are just as bad as Hal has been given out. Anyway, poor old Russell Tiffin. Mm. I'm not sure if he went on to umpire many more internationals. I suspect he didn't. That tri-series, Australia got back on the bike pretty quickly to make the final. They thrashed England in the first final. Um, England were bowled out for 117 and Australia got that in 12.2 overs, none down. That was the Warn return as well. Remember Warney came back with his shirt off and he was ripped uh, and <laughs> those pictures resurfaced a few weeks later in South Africa, needless to say. Yeah, he looked so good. And that, that the whole subplot of that month or so of one-day cricket was, well, a few mm. weeks of one-day cricket. Can Warren get back for the final? Can he prove his fitness for the World Cup squad? And, of course, he did. Bowled well in, in that final at the SCG, and they won the second final at the mm. MCG. And you know what? I'd argue it's the last compelling tri-series. I reckon that's the last tri-series where I can tell you without any you know, scorecards or anything like that, quite a bit about it, why not bring them back? I mean, this was a great era for the Australian-Sri Lankan rivalry in no small part due to the Tri-Series. I know this mm-hmm. memorable 343 that Sean's had us talking about is part of that and a famous win for Sri Lanka at the SCG. But given one-day cricket has lost a little bit of oomph with their bilateral series, we're going to be losing the World Cup Super League. We know that's not happening in the next cycle. So we do have time to pivot and think about the fixture configuration for one dayers. And with that in mind, it might yeah. be it might be this idea's time has come again. I think the main thing is that um, Cricket Australia hated having the neutral games, the second and third teams playing one another because it, it cost as much to stage, but um, nobody would come and, and the TV ratings would be lower. But if one of the two teams was always India, then they wouldn't have a problem with that <laughs> anymore. You'd you'd probably get more people coming to the um, the India-someone-else game than the India-Australia game. Quite, quite possibly. And also you could use the smaller venues. I reckon they can get creative here. Like... It's kind of what I said, uh, well, have said a lot about the the, um, the tri-series I saw in T20 cricket in Zimbabwe back in 2018. A tri-series in the space of a week, you get to see seven games of cricket because T20 you play every day. It actually works. You know, sure, a one-day series, tri-series might take a fortnight, but they allocate a fortnight anyway when they play these things. They always give them two or three days off. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, mark that for notice that I think that bring okay. back the tri-series. I'm also going to mark that Sean asked you to talk about Marvin Adepartu and you did not, but you did oh, tell sorry. him the story of your first date. So I was going to say the Marvin Adepartu thing on, on the way out here. I did note that he hit only five boundaries in his century. So they've been going at sevens, right? 
So mm. Jay Surya, 12 fours, four sixes, Atapatu down the other end. It took him 123 balls to hit 105, which is relatively slow going in, in context. Only found the rope five times. So it showed what an industrious player Atapatu was. Yes, but I have told you about when I took Paul Lauren to the to Bay 13. I hope she's going well. I don't know what she's up to. I, I'm sure she flourished, whatever it is. She was my girlfriend in, I think, first year and a half of uni or something like that. So it did, it, whatever whatever happened that day, it clearly worked to an extent because she didn't kick me to the curb. Clearly, it somehow didn't derail things, mm, which is mm. which is maybe more impressive than working. <laughs> um, yeah, but Marvin Adipati, of course, we we always remember him for uh, for making one run in his first six Test innings, um, made a pair, then made Norton one, then made a mm. pair. But not too long after that, he was making double hundreds and ended up playing ninety Test matches and and making sixteen tons. And I, I remember watching a lot of Marvin Adipati batting in that era. So there's one of the three. Th- Four threes, and I suspect the other two, Stuart and real Victor Trumper. I'm waggling my eyebrows at you, real Victor Trumper. <laughs> I suspect that this is the same number because these numbers came in a couple of days apart. One on September 10, one on September 13. But there, so there, there's no there's no England team score. But you you were floating a theory to me that this must involve the South Africa test that England played? I mean, I was originally, right? So, yeah, as you say, with the pledges coming in when they did on the 10th and 13th of September, that test match between England and South Africa started on the Saturday. It was meant to start on the Thursday, the 8th of September. Queen died. Friday, no cricket. Mm. The 10th was day one. It was all over by day three, which was effectively day five, Mm. the 12th. And I remember at the time Andy Zaltzman crunched together a bunch of unflattering numbers about how quick the series was over because, you know, Lords was over in two and a half days, Old Trafford three and a half days. And in terms of cricket actually played, the Oval Test was finished inside two playing days when you factored in rain delays and, and that kind of thing. But I asked Zoltz this morning and none of that quite worked, unfortunately. So, yeah, the four innings in that Test match were... 36.2 overs, 36.2 overs, 56.2 overs and 22.3 in England's chase. They won, I think, by nine right. wickets or something like that inside oh, half an hour on that what became the third day but was kind of the fifth day. So, yeah, that was my mm. theory, but it doesn't really go anywhere. And also the other part I pondered, could it have something to do with when the Queen died? I know the Queen died at three-something. So I checked that out and the Queen didn't die at 3.43 p.m. She died at according to official records, 3.10pm on the 8th of September at mm. the start of that test match that, that got delayed. I thought I had a great answer, which, which well, I was like, you know what did happen at 3.43pm or what what could happen at 3.43pm? What, what time does a test match start in England? 11am. Uh-huh. So two-hour first session, 40 minutes for lunch, two-hour second session. Yeah. What time is it? Uh, it is 340 Yes, and often the they have to finish an over and so the tea break might be a couple of minutes late. So I thought, okay. hang on, is 3.43 the tea break on the 10th, the day after the Queen's died? I was like, there must be there must have been a tribute, there must have been something at the tea break that ah, was significant. Right, right, and I right. thought I had this, but I went back and looked through all the, the live commentary and so on and, and the commemorative bit was before play started was, at yeah. 10.57, not at tea. And it doesn't seem like there was anything significant that happened at the tea break. And also, the tea break wasn't at 3.40 because they were trying to make up lost time. They 
chucked in, they had an extended session for an extra half hour and uh-huh. the tea break didn't come around until 10 past four. So that completely kiboshed what I, I, I thought I was setting myself up for a genius answer here <laughs> and that was not it. So 3.43pm on the 10th when on the first day of this test match that should have started two days earlier is probably around the time that Zach Crawley was having his front pad blown off. By by Marco Janssen, I suspect, <laughs> judging by the sort of working it out by the number of overs that had been bowled and the, yeah. the DRS reviews and stuff, that, that's about as fine as I can get it. Maybe maybe both of our pledges in this case, maybe Stuart and, and Vic, were crawly watchers, you know, maybe they're, they, they're part of that broader attitude that he's not up to it, which is uh, not unreasonable. But, I mean... Both of them picking the time, like one person might be niche enough to pick that as their number, but two people wouldn't pick that as their number. So that doesn't make sense. So I don't know. Maybe it's not about something that happened on the 10th, but I've gone through that game as closely as I can and I can't find anything in that test match that leads me to 3.43. Tell me if I'm wrong, nerd pledges, but but I can't find it. So I started looking for other cricket around that period of time. There's a first-class match that ends on the 9th, the day before, in which Gloucestershire make 343 in their first innings. Uh, if you listen to the show a lot, you know that we we keep a close eye on the freaks, as we like to call the Gloucestershire team. They were playing Somerset at Taunton. Marcus Harris made 159, close to half the runs. We talk about Marcus Harris a bit, uh, whether he's in the Zach Crawley category, whether he's up to being an opener at test level, we might find out in the next few months. But again, I, like that seems like a strange way to draw attention to that innings to say I'm going to use the first innings score that Gloucestershire made and it ends in a draw mm. and Gloucestershire finished bottom of Division 1 and Somerset are like fourth from the bottom. It's not a significant game. It doesn't have any bearing on anything really. So I don't think that's going to be it. I started looking at other international matches on September the 8th. India and Afghanistan made 323 collectively in a T20 match. They did not make 343. They made 323, almost there. I did go back to September the 3rd. What if it was a few days beforehand? You'll remember this one. Australia were playing a one-day international in Townsville against Zimbabwe. Australia all out for 141. Ryan Burl, the Burlmeister, takes five for ten in 18 balls. Of um, course. and, And they chase the target seven wickets down. Zimbabwe beat Australia in a 50-over game. Doesn't happen much. Significant result. Could it be something to do with this? Okay, you look through the card. This is that bonkers card, right? Because Mm. David Warner makes 94 runs out of 141 runs in a completed inning. He was one run away from a batterman, wasn't he? He has scored 66% of the runs Mm. compared to Viv Richards scoring 69% of the runs. So... Warner makes 94, Glenn Maxwell makes 19, and the rest of the scorecard is Finch 5, Smith 1, Carey 4, Stoinis 3, Green 3, Agar 0, Stark 2, Zampa 1 not out, and Josh Hazelwood 0. I mean, it is a dramatic and interesting scorecard in its own way. So Warner with 66% almost breaks the record but doesn't quite. The only thing that stops him breaking the record is the fact that Glenn Maxwell makes 19, ruining it for everybody. And, of course, if you listen to this show, you know that if, if say, Maxwell's out for a duck, the butterfly effect means you don't know what would have happened next. Somebody else might have come out and clubbed 30 runs instead of making a low score. It's not to say it's guaranteed that it would have been the same, but if Maxwell had made a low score 
and the rest of the scoring had remained consistent, then Warner would definitely have broken that Viv Richards record for the highest proportion of runs in a one-day innings. Is there anything there that could come together? Remember, we're looking for 343. Glenn Maxwell batted for 34 minutes and hit three fours. <laughs> Look, I still think it's likely to be something to do with that silly test at the Oval or the Queen, but I love that you found a way to thread the needle here. And and it was an episode that, you know, if there were two pledges, that would, that would make sense in, in Stuart and, and the real Victor Trumper because we dropped out the Zimbabwe episode, the Zimbabwe special, like mm. days before they won that international. That's when you were overseas, Jeff, and yep. you were in out of range at Burning Man and had no idea that Zimbabwe had beat Australia until you got back and I told you about it on the show. So, Or that the Queen was dead. Or the Queen was dead, indeed. The Queen is dead. I told you that Winnie was doing that on the Tube the other week, didn't I? I went to Buckingham Palace with her and, um, and she was quite interested in why we couldn't go into why we couldn't go into the house, into into the Queen's house. And, and I'm like, yeah, it's a pretty good point, actually. It is a public asset. Anyway, and then she decided to tell everybody on the tube home, Elizabeth is dead. Elizabeth has died. I'm like, yeah, good on you, Sandra Sully, with the late news. Um, but, but, she, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I couldn't stop her doing it. It was quite cute in its own way. People were like, oh, yes, oh, yes, okay, little girl. Plus Elizabeth could be anybody. Elizabeth could be a pet rabbit. You know, Elizabeth <laughs> could be like... There are many ways that could go. True. Uh, we have one more number today, Jeff, and it's my favourite answer, so I'm glad it's coming last. We've got some confirmations after that. The number was 1020 GBP from Matthew Davies, and we love these. He said, take it how you will, it's a blank slate. So I did. Uh, and, I, and I thank him for this because without the blank slate, it's improbable I would have ended up where I've ended up. I love free hits with big numbers because it gives you a lot of room to work with it, we could have done an answer about the 1020th test match that was at Old Trafford at 85 um, where Craig McDermott took eight of the nine wickets in England's first innings which is of note Alan Border made a century not the first time we've mentioned AB making tons today nobody's taken 1020 first class wickets or finished on 1020 Tim Murtas on 934 and he's playing today at Lords against Kent at age 41. He's kind of the playing assistant coach this year, Jeff. He played the first week, missed the next couple. So it's not outside the realms of possibility if Murta, you know, does that for a few years. He could get up to He's going to need 10 years as a playing assistant <laughs> yeah, coach. Could, could require a little bit of luck. But I, I don't think that the fact that he's still playing is unrelated to the fact that he's within striking distance of 1,000. We'll see. The 10th of February, so, you know, 10-2, you know, I thought we'd have a look at that. That was the uh, 20 years this year on the 10th of February since the Andy Flower-Henry Alonga protest at the 2003 uh, men's World Cup when they wore the black armbands and were in exile and never to play for Zimbabwe again after that. So we were talking about Zimbabwe a moment ago. That was an important part in their cricketing history. But let's shelve all of that because there's been a 10 for 20. And if there's been a 10 for 20, we're going to talk about it on Storytime. A 10 for 20. We've talked about the Headley Verity 10 for 10, but 10 for 20, bring it on. I was thrilled to see this come up on my chart of 10 for's. It was the... Time-honoured classic, Assam versus Bengal in January 1957 in the Ranji Trophy. The match started on uh, Republic Day, the 26th of Jan. Uh, so independence was 10 years earlier than that on the 15th of August, my birthday, 47. But the constitution came into 
um, came into act on the 26th of January uh, 1950. So the 7th Republic Day was when this game began. Uh, and Bengal bat for a couple of days. Nothing unusual in India. They make 505. What is nearly unusual is only one century. It was one of those scorecards where there's a lot of 50s, but SK Shrome made 122, not far away from a, a category that you love, Jeff, and Andrew Sampson loves. Big scores with um, no tons, but not quite one century there. A word for Sergerum Gerdhari from Assam, an off-spinner. He was 37 years of age when this match took place and he bowled pretty much for the entirety of the two days. 72 overs, 15 maidens, 7 for 147. So they are awesome figures, you know, to bowl almost unchanged for, for a couple of days in the dirt to still take 7 for and to go at barely two and over. But that's nothing compared to what would happen next when Bengal had the chance to bowl. They roll... Poor old Assam for 54 in just 38 overs. And 20 of those were extras coming back to our high extra count that we were referring to earlier in the show. Our man Gurdhari, who took the seven for, he was the only man to reach double figures, um, making 14. Now, what comes next is the definition of bowling in partnerships. I love this. Uh, down one end, Datu Pradkar, who was a long-term test all-rounder, I'm sure by the, the Samson definition or the um, Mm -hmm. Statisticians Association definition. 14 overs, 12 maidens, none for 10. Beautiful numbers, but nothing in that fourth column. That's all that really matters. None for 10. 14 overs, 12 maidens, none for 10. Down the other end, Primung Su Chatterjee. Left arm seamer. He's 30 years of age at this point. 10 years into his first class career. A fairly modest career in terms of games played, 32 of them, but with a fantastic average of 17.7. We'll come back to that in a moment. But that's helped along by this perfect day. So bowling down the other end, he's got a test seamer. He's bowling with him with his left arm swingers. 19 overs, 11 maidens, 10 for 20. 10 for 20. It's a hell of a card. What makes it all the more striking, the first wicket's caught. Uh, the other nine are all bowled the league before, seven bowled and two LBs. They were then, as they are now, the best Indian figures in first-class history, uh, the third best analysis ever after Verity's 10 for 10. And George Geary, who took 10 for 18 for Leicestershire against Glamorgan in 1929, two performances we've already talked about on Storytime before, so it's only fitting that we talk about the, the, the bronze medal, if you like, on this front. Had form doing this as well, Chatterjee took 15 for 109 in a semi-final for the Ranji Trophy the previous year. Wow. It said that he swung the ball prodigiously and he didn't get higher honours. And this was in his obituary when he passed away in Calcutta in 2011 at age 83 because swing just wasn't respected in India in this era. It wasn't seen as something that would be particularly penetrative or problematic for batters facing it at home. Also, as explained in, in the obit, one batter who faced him said the ball curved and dipped like it had a life of its own. Uh, he bowled left arm around the wicket as well to exacerbate the angle. So you, I, I suppose what he was doing was getting wide of the crease and getting it to angle in and, and steer away, which is why the stumps were always in place, certainly in this game against Assam. Now, a nice little postscript to this match. Assam follow on, and they're all out for 245. So they do better. Good on them for doing so after being rolled for, for 58. Pramungsu Chatterjee, none for 38 from 28 overs. And Datu Pradkar, who we spoke about before with the lovely Nunfa, uh-huh. 7 for 65 from 35. Per our discussion the other week, we were trying to find where there had been in professional cricket a Nunfa and a Nunfa. And there was some none. fairly tangential, you know, there might have been one or two that kind of ticked the box. But what I was looking for were 
the second time around or the other time in the match bowling properly, not bowling an over or two, properly and taking a none for. Well, Chatterjee did exactly that. 10 for 20 in the first innings, none for 38 in the second, still gets his 10-wicket game. But surely this is the only 10 and zero. And um, yeah, it was a, a lovely little story to happen upon. The beauty of the free hit. So thanks to Matthew Davies for that. Pramung Su Chatterjee's perfect day. 10 for 20. <laughs> and, I mean, if you're the other team, you're like, all right, I've got a plan. We all got out to this guy in the first innings. <laughs> How about none of us gets out to him in the second innings? And then you go out there and you execute that plan, except you all get out to the other fucking guy. And the other guy who was the Indian bowler, right? Like the guy who was playing international cricket and had a pretty, yeah. good, pretty good test career. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hell of a scorecard. And, as I say, the... Now we've done the 10 for 10, the 10 for 18, and the 10 for 20. So I'm glad we've, we've got gold, silver, and bronze accounted for. And we should be so lucky for there to be another 10 for at some point. I'd, I'd love to be at one one day. As unlikely as that is, that's probably as, uh, mm. as likely as to see that as it is a, I don't know, a, there'd be test hat more trick. test hat There probably are more 10 for's and test hat tricks, but remembering that test hat tricks is only... First class? Yeah, I reckon there'd be there'd be there'd be more hat tricks. There'd be a lot more hat tricks. There've only been three. Oh no, sorry. I mean test yeah, cricket. No, no, I mean more along the lines of test hat tricks. There've been forty-five or whatever mm. it is, and um, the number of times. I'll tell you. I'll tell you how many times ten wickets have been taken in in innings because I've got this very close, close to hand because I I'm, I'm that I kind of guy. First class cricket. There's a good chunk. Yeah, there are quite a few. Yes, in first class cricket there are ninety-one to be precise. So yeah, it's uh, a similar level of frequency across the journey, but. Yeah, that's all of those done. But love a tenfer. So thank you again, Matthew Davies. Our last new number Very of the good. day. That is our last new number of the day. If you want to be a number, a new number or a revised number, you just go to patreon.com slash the final word and you put your name in, you put your number in, you help us keep making the show. We love you forever and everything works out well. You can go and hang out on the nice final word chat page where everybody's uh, – making plans and having meetups and sharing pictures of their dogs and all kinds of good wholesome activities. It is the best thing to do on the internet. It is certainly the best thing for you to do on the internet. <laughs> Maybe like do some yoga videos or something, uh, you know, look up some healthy recipes and become part of the Final Word community. Why not? A couple of confirmations, some of the numbers that we did get right. We knew that we had Erin Kane's number right with the story about Jaskaran Malhotra hitting six sixes in and over. We were pretty thick because we could just couldn't figure out why three six six was the number. It was the number because he scored thirty six of six balls. Thirty six six three six six. There you go. Aaron has tidied that up. I was very happy with that. Uh, Ilya Andrews at twelve forty. So last week I went through the one hundred and twenty four that Jamie Siddons made in the Sheffield Shield final of nineteen ninety ninety one. Ilya says we did justice to his memory of being there on days one and two. Given maturity and extra knowledge, noting that my wife is from Mildura, his move to South Australia isn't as controversial in hindsight as it was at the time, given he was from Robinvale and probably spent more time in Mildura and maybe Adelaide than Melbourne. That's very reasonable from you, Ilya. I remember it being quite controversial, but um, yeah, that, that does make a fair bit of sense that uh, in hindsight, these things are a little bit less controversial. I still, I still just 
I don't understand state parochialism. I just could not care less. It is interesting, I suppose. The things you latch onto as a yeah, kid, particularly, yeah. it's about it's about identity, and you just want to be part of a group, whatever the group is. Richard L. with the two dollars seventy one. We told well, I told the very lengthy story um, with a lot of discursions of Khalid Wazir's two hundred and seventy one career runs in first class cricket, having played on that early. Pakistan tour to England and it did take us a while to find this answer so Richard writes in and says this he says it took three balls but you finally hit that one for six enjoyed the entire disquisition on Pakistani cricketers the coincidences of names and brothers exactly the kind of thing I was hoping for when I put up the number but also because we talked a lot about snowshoeing in that episode Adam for reasons best known to us he says this, the first snowshoes I used were US government World War II surplus made of wood nearly as tall as I am. They had been used in the Italian campaign by what were called Alpine troops and given to the National Park Service for free lessons and tours around the Paradise Visitor Centre. It was important to learn how to avoid walking near trees where branches hold up the snow and if you get too close you can fall in. That sounds unpleasant. Current snowshoes are much easier to deal with. I mainly do things like listen to the final word while looking at things like animal tracks and hawks flying overhead. Aerobic exercise at a great speed to see animals and birds and how they deal with winter. There you go. There's your advertorial for snowshoeing. If you're on the fence, get a pair of snowshoes on. That's kind of how I remember it in my American winter all those years ago. And our last confirmation is Elise Gain 539 and again, we were correct. It was Michael Neese's first game for Glamorgan. Uh, Elise is looking forward to listening to our coverage of the Ashes. Will our schedule enable us to see any of the women's games? That's a good question, Elise. I mean, it's uh, in in my case, it's it's getting harder and harder, partly due to the fact that I'm getting married right in the middle of the Ashes series. So I'll see as much as I can around that commitment. The schedule's a nightmare. The schedule is an absolute nightmare this year if you're trying to cover both the men's and the women's. Mm. Historically, Jeff, the, the previous two times we've been here for the, um, the the Ashes when they've been side by side, we've been able to get to – I think we got to every women's game in, in 2019. Yep. Um, we, had to, we had to skip a couple of men's World Cup games to do so. But broadly speaking, the schedule allowed it. Certainly 2015, there were no clashes. But for some reason this year, there are a couple of instances where they're playing women's games – after men's mm. test playing days, sure, it might make sense for television, but yeah, I, th- I think it, I, don't, I don't think that's ideal because there'd be a lot of people out there who might actually go uh, and and would pay more attention if it was given uh, a bit more breathing room. And I think this advances the argument that these multi-format series, brilliant as they are, need to be in non-men's Ashes years. There's no reason why they need to be side by side anymore. Yeah, and and it could it could work out more strongly commercially to have you know that's just more ashes to go around mm. i suppose mm. the test match will definitely be there i'll definitely be there i'm not sure if your, if your wedding planning will allow you to be there but the yeah. um so there are two two of the t20s are on in the evening after test days and and a couple of the other games are on the day before a men's test normally if if you're if you're hired to cover it a test match they want you there the day before because that's when the captain's press conferences are that's when you figure out who's playing what the selections are because you're watching the nets you're figuring out um who's doing what who's training in what way who's talking to selectors all that kind of stuff so being there the day before a test is usually essential um and so it's 
it's it's going to be it's going to be hard, and and also it it makes things like everything's at the other end of the country. So you've got a women's yeah. game in Taunton, and then a men's test in Manchester. You've got uh, London, and then Leeds. It's not like it's not as though there's a game in Leeds and a game in Manchester, and you can hop from one to the other. So basically, we'll be getting to everything we can, but we're still trying to work out how to do that and and uh, like exactly how many games we can get to. Yeah, and it's not it's not yeah. Just to back over one last point, it's not as though yeah, we're, we're prioritising the men's on top of the women's. It's just because of the machinations. Like you can't kind of dip in and out of a men's Ashes series. You're either doing it, in my case, commentating mm-hmm. on it for, for radio, or you're not. The women's Ashes, are, it's kind of staccato in, isn't it? Like they're, they're three white ball T20s, three one-day games plus the five-day test match. So that's an improvement and they're splicing the test match. But even that, it only just gets enough breathing room, right? Like it begins the day after a men's test mm-hmm. match and I think it – there's, there's one, one day, day gap, there's one which day is the break. one, yeah, which is the day I'm getting married on, which makes things rather complicated with the um, with the commitments I've got in and around that. So, and that's unusual. That wouldn't ordinarily be happening. But yeah, it's it's um, it's frustrating because, well, as everybody who listens to this show knows, we've we've given it our all to give women's coverage every bit as we do men's. But this series is a bloody tricky one. Yeah. Yeah, so stay tuned. Um, we'll we'll if there are some things we can't get to, we'll be making sure we get it covered. Yes, by the final word more broadly, um, in in one way or another, we'll by hook or by crook. Anyway, that is the end of the show. That has been Story Time one hundred and thirty four. Thank you for your company. Nice to have you with us. Thanks to everybody who sent in numbers for this show. Uh, if you're still waiting on a number to come up or a revisit, you can always drop us a message and find out where you are. Um, it can be a little bit confusing. I know that our, our system, I understand our system, but not everybody else necessarily has the same spreadsheet that I have. Um, anything else, Adam? Uh, just a reminder, Lord's Tabs, uh, link in the show notes if you want to support the training and marathon efforts or half marathon efforts now that we have coming up before Edinburgh. If you want to do Edinburgh, just like call me or, well, I say call me, text me somehow and let me know as soon as you can. And if you're in the UK, enjoy your long weekend for the first of three in quick succession. Hey, I want to do Edinburgh and this is crazy, but here's my number. <laughs> so call me, maybe. This has been the final word, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We'll see you next time. Have a nice weekend. So you know what I meant. I had to go.